Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, to another Romeo Carey podcast. Closing in on the Christmas season here. 2020, what a year. Looking at the bright side of things, COVID and the lockdown and everything that's transpired. I got to say it was a blessing. Blessing to take time out of the rat race and to just feel a cool breeze and recognize that life only happens where you're breathing. To get closer to the people that mean things to you and to really take stock of your life. I've been blessed to be able to maintain a funnel of you know, income, work maintained in an online world, but it's still maintained. And I can't find a, a negative in it except for the people that we've lost uh, because of it and the economy. And, you know, there's plenty of negatives that we can look at. But I look at the things that are in my control and the things that are in my control, I'm thankful for. And that 2020 for me was an immensely positive year. Not because the year was positive, but because my outlook was positive. And I'm looking forward to 2021 with the same same ideas. And what you can get done, what you can accomplish on your own is, for me, as an independent, you know, it doesn't get better than that. It's like, how hard do you want to work? How much success do you want is really determined by how much effort are you willing to expend. And... I'm pretty lazy, to be perfectly honest, and it's a test. It's a test of my inner, you know, fortitude. How much do I want to put out? And just like this podcast, I've got to put it out. It's a measure of what I did with my time. And I had a very successful semester tutoring, you know, at least 100 students to start their own podcast during covid I had a lot of success with that, and in fact, what we're going to be listening to today is a documentary interview of one of the greatest comedy legends of all time. This was in his 83rd year. No, was he 87? He was 87. This takes us back to 2017. This was with uh, Austin Furman. I was mentoring Austin Furman to become an interviewer, you know, to produce his own TV shows. And one of the things I inspire is to find people to interview. And he did. He, He found Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart invited him, you know, us to his house to do an interview. And that's exactly what you're going to listen to. What a gentleman. What a nice guy. Loves dogs. Who's just around the corner from uh, where we were and spent a, spent an afternoon with Mr. Newhart. And I want to tell you, the same guy that you come to love on television happened to be who he was. There's no, nothing different about him in real life. Just a pleasant, down-to-earth guy and could be your neighbor. And that's really, for me, doesn't surprise me. I, I come from the world of celebrity. My my dad was a celebrity. I never meet celebrities with awe. It's difficult for me. I'm, I'm unique that way because there wasn't anybody bigger than my dad. So when you meet somebody who's, you know, he's won two Emmys, he's won, he's won every award, television award there is to win. And I grew up with him watching. My mom just loved Bob Newhart. I loved him too. I still love him. Still alive today, 90, 90 years old and going strong. It's been a beautiful year, and I'm glad I'm able to bring 
Mr. Newhart to you to enjoy. He's got some pearls of wisdom in this one. And I want to thank Austin Furman for uh, lining it up. And you'll hear both me and Austin in it. So without further ado, I bring you the legendary Bob Newhart. Take it away, Bob. Well, it was a fairly normal childhood, I guess. It was, uh, I was born and raised in Chicago. My dad went through the Depression, but as a kid, uh, he lost his job. He couldn't get a job for years and years. But as a kid, um, you just take that as a given. You know, you don't, you think every kid's going through the same thing you're going through. Um, and I, I went to Catholic schools. I went to uh, St. Catherine's Grammar School and then uh, St. Ignatius High School and then Loyola University in Chicago. And um, I, I graduated with a degree uh, from Loyola in, uh, in accounting. And so when, uh, when I graduated, I went into service during the Korean War for two years. And uh, I got out and I was an accountant for about two and a half years. I was with the, the Glidden Company and, um, and uh, it was the Glidden, the Glidden and, um, well, anyway, <laughs> I was account for uh, uh, Gypsum, U.S. Gypsum. I'm okay. trying to think of the name. Um, and then I left that. A friend of mine worked for a, a production house and uh, he hired me as a as a, uh, a copywriter, and I did that for about six months, and I got fired from that job because um, they were cutting back, and uh, oh. they, so they eliminated half the staff. <clears throat> and at that time, I just decided uh, I was young, I was living at home, I wasn't married, I had no obligations, so. Um, I was just going to give comedy a, a trial. Years and years and years, people would, you know, a friend of mine would say, "You're, you're very funny. You ought to go to New York and, mm. uh, you know, and get it get, or television." And uh, and of course, that's easy for people to say, but then when you have to do it, um, so I just decided to set two years aside and uh, see if I could make a living in comedy. In yeah. comedy, and. Um, but then two years became three years, and three years became four years. Uh, and then, then I had a friend of mine, a disc jockey in Chicago, uh, named Dan Sorkin. And uh, he, was, he was a very prominent disc jockey, and uh, he was familiar with some of the stuff I had done. I was on his TV show, local TV show in Chicago. And uh, the Warner Brother record people were coming through town. And um, they called on Dan because he was an important DJ. And uh, he said, I have this friend of mine that I think is very funny. And uh, they said, well, we'd like to hear some of his, uh, some of his, his stuff. So uh, Dan called me up. He said, uh, have you got a tape recorder? I said, no, I don't. He said, well, see if you can borrow one and just put down the routines, you know, um, 
because I want to rather record people want to want to listen to it. Listen to yourself. So um, I I, pl- I brought it down to downtown to uh, WCFL was the was the radio station, and um, or WLS I forget which one it was now, but I, I played it for them. So they said okay, uh, comedy records. This was in nineteen fifty nine. Uh, and comedy records were starting to make some noise. Um, um, Mort Saul had, had a comedy album. Uh, Michael Lane, uh, Shelley Bourbon, um, Jonathan Winters, uh, Lenny Bruce. And, and they were starting to make, so they said, okay, um, we'll give you a recording contract uh, to record a comedy album. Uh, and that took about a year because no one, I'd never played a nightclub and no one wanted to take a chance on uh, somebody who had never played a, a nightclub before. Uh, so they finally got me a job in uh, Houston, Texas at a club called the Tidelands. And uh, and I was I, I worked there for about two weeks, I think. And, and then at the end of the two weeks, uh, they were going to tape on a Friday and a Saturday. And... Uh, so I, they recorded it, and um, and then nothing happened. I didn't hear anything for it was like January of 1960 at that point. So I hadn't heard anything. So I called him up, and I said, uh, whatever happened to that comedy record? Uh, and they said, it's going crazy in Minneapolis. That uh, A disc jockey just picked it up, and... Uh, they play it all the time on the radio, and uh, they even put they'll put it in the paper at five thirty. Uh, the driving instructor at six fifteen, uh, Abe Lincoln, mm. uh, and then the record just it just went crazy. It just exploded, it, uh, and it became the the high the best selling comedy record ever ever made at that time. I think still today. Um, and I, I received uh, three Grammys in 61 for the year of 1960 um, as the album of the year. Um, and a Peabody Award for the Bob Newhart show. Well, that, yes, that was in... That was later. That was the, the television show. Mm-hmm. The, the event. So, um, so all of a sudden I was getting from, I mean, taking nothing part-time jobs to just existing... Um, I was getting phone calls to how many Ed Sullivan shows did I want to do, and it was like, uh, and then uh, I, I played a club. Um, uh, the second club I played, I almost, I almost went back to accounting because I didn't get a laugh for two shows a night for a week, and not even a cough. I mean, I would a cough would have been <laughs> some. Some kind of sound, but you know, and they were Canadian. Uh, it was it was in uh, uh, London, uh, uh, Ontario, Canada, mm. at a club called the uh, Elmwood Casino, and uh, they were very nice. They just no one laughed, and that was my first exposure to uh, to dying. Um, but then the next next club I played was in Winnipeg, Canada, and and they were great, and so uh, so I stuck it out, um, 
and and then it, uh, I was just kind of carried along by the just the momentum of of the album. Well, um, I would write these things. They, they strike me funny, and I write them down, even though I wasn't didn't really have anywhere that I was going to use them. I, mean, I had no place to use them. Uh, I had three routines when I signed the, the record contract. I have a routine called uh, the Abe Lincoln, uh, Abe Lincoln routine, which was a, uh, uh, a story of a PR man who was trying to fashion uh, an Abe Lincoln-type president out of uh, somebody who uh, didn't have the all those things that the, the elevator didn't go to the top floor. Um, <laughs> he was a taco short of a combination plate. Um, then, then I did one on uh, teaching a woman how to drive, which would be politically incorrect today, but it wasn't at that time. And uh, and then a, sub, uh, a routine called the submarine commander, uh, and those were the three routines, and then uh, I had to fill up the other side of the album because I didn't have enough material. What was your favorite routine? Abe Lincoln, probably. I think it said, uh, it said a lot about today, even more than it did at, at, that, at that time. Um, the, the focus groups and, uh, and this, in this last election, we just had you had one side was was going after the the popular vote, and the other side was going after the electoral uh, count. And it turns out the side that was going for the electoral one, the the electoral vote, even though the popular vote uh, the, the the other side had the popular vote. Um, it, it was all um, focus groups and um, what city should we play and what city shouldn't we play. And it was a very directed, very uh, a lot of computer um, printouts. And, uh, so, so even today, and that was 1960, it, it still has a lot of uh, relevancy today. Could you do a little of your, um, a little bit from uh, Abraham Lincoln? Well, they're hard, it's hard to do when you take it out of context. I'm trying to think of, well, for instance, in other words, if we didn't have Abe Lincoln as president, as one of our greatest presidents ever, if if there had been someone who wasn't as bright as Abe, um, would the advertising specialist um, be able to create an Abe Lincoln out of, uh, out of the man who was less than an Abe Lincoln? And, and they would tell him, like, Abe, uh, you know, read the, the bio, the biography because uh, you keep getting things wrong all the time. Um, like, a, like for instance, uh, you, you were a rail splitter uh, then, then an attorney. I, you wouldn't give up your law practice to, to become a rail splitter. So 
the next time they ask you, you know. Uh, and then, uh, and then at one point, uh, he the he, Abe says, uh, yeah, "I'm receiving a lot of complaints on uh, General Grant and his drinking." And um, he said, "I need you know get the get the gag writers working and see if they can't give me a a snapper, you know, or I can come back the next time they bring it up." So so they, they continued talking. He said, "Okay, Abe, uh, the the." Uh, the guys that come up with something. The next time they ask you uh, about about uh, uh, Grant's drinking, uh, tell them you're going to get a case of it uh, for all the other generals. Which is actually what what Abe had said about Grant because he was so he was he had been so successful. He'd been so even as a drunk he was more successful than than a lot of his sober generals were. And uh, but he kept having to explain to Abe, no, 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 Abe, no. It's like it's like the reason he's winning is is because you know, because of what he's drinking, the the brand. That's that's no, no, Abe. Uh, Abe, Abe, uh, do it. It's funny. Trust me, do it. So uh, <laughs> that was, um, and again, that that was just something that struck me funny. I, I read a book called The Hidden Persuaders, and it was about some subliminal advertising. And uh, I had nowhere to use it. I just uh, I just wrote it down. And, and, it, and it's funny, but when, when you're writing new material, the really good material, it writes itself. It just, it just flows. Mm -hmm. it just, um, and, and then there are other routines I've had that I just slaved over and changed. And, Change the ending, and, uh, and but but the good ones just seem to have a life of their own. Well, the comedians, um, I always say comedians are never off. You're never on vacation because you're always observing people. Um, I mean, you you'll be. Uh, we're going to Hawaii with the, with the family in April, and. Uh, you know, you sit on the beach, but if you're a comedian, you're watching the people on the beach, and and you see somebody and say, "Oh, that's a funny walk. That guy has a funny walk. I gotta, I gotta remember the way that guy walked because I may need that one day." And uh, so, so you're, you're always uh, you're always analyzing everything. So when you go into acting, as I did in um, in the, the Bob Newhart show. Um, a lot of it was a result of watching, watching people and making notes over the years about. Uh, if I ever get the chance, I've, I've I've got to use that walk. I see. What was it like working with Wolf Ferrell and Elf? Well, Will is Will's great. Um, he's a joy to work with, and uh, a lot of people he doesn't get the credit uh, that he and John Favreau, the director, deserve for it. Um, it was very easy and for Buddy and uh, Elf uh, to be just stupid. Uh, 
And yet, he, it, Will was able to make him uh, believable and likable. And uh, and there was, that's very difficult to do because it, it would have it very easily could have gone right into, you know, what's wrong with him? Doesn't he realize he's bigger than? But he was able to pull that off, which 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 is a a, a, a great piece of acting. Over forty years, I mean, Newhart Show is around in the nineteen seventies. But do people still ask you today about the ending of Newhart? Yes. <laughs> well, that that was um, that was actually my wife's idea. The, the, really? The, the, yeah. The final, the final episode. Uh, it was a, the Bob Newhart show. Uh, it was on at uh, nine o'clock, um, nine nine thirty. I guess it was. No, I'm sorry. We went back, went back in in Newhart, uh, and we were on Monday at, at nine o'clock. Which was not a, a hit time slot, and and we were able to build the show into a hit time slot. So after about six years of, of Newhart, the show, the Vermont show, um, it, it, CBS was moving us around, and I thought they were kind of being unfair to uh, being unfair to to the show, which which I I felt you know the uh, had, had done a lot for CBS. So this was in the sixth year of the show, and I said to my wife, it was around Christmas time, I said, we were at, I went to someone's house for a Christmas party, and uh, I said to her, we were waiting to get our picture taken with the host and hostess, and uh, I said, you know, I think this is going to be the last year of the show. And, and she knew I, was, I had been unhappy. And uh, and she said right away as we were standing there, she said, "Well, you know, if you end the show, uh, you ought to end it on a a dream sequence, because there's so much that doesn't make sense. I mean, the the, the maid was an heiress, and and uh, the handyman wasn't handy at all, and uh, and uh, and the, the, the Peter Scolari talked in alliteration, and." Uh, and then there were these three people, obviously from West Virginia, you know. And what the what the hell are they doing in Vermont? You know. So I, I said it was a great idea. Well, it turns out CBS and I were able to work out the problems, so we did two more years. So in the eighth year, uh, I decided that was going to be the, the final episode of, the show, and uh, and I gave the idea, my wife's idea, to the writers, and they. And they build a show around it. So, do they agree with your wife's idea, or they they well, had to just change a little bit of? Well, they did a wonderful job of of uh, uh, adjusting it, of adjusting it, of, of filling it out. Mm. Um, but it was her idea, and, mm. and we we got a lot of a lot of reaction around the country. Too. Yeah, a lot of people with question marks. Certainly, uh, I have to ask you, uh, how has comedy changed? Uh, now, looking back to the 1960s, 1970s, are stand-up comedians more rude and vulgar? Well, rude and vulgar is a is an odd phrase because, for instance, I, I think the most influential comedian of the past 50 years uh, is Richard Pryor. Um, 
Do I find him rude and vulgar? Not at all. He is. He he's talking about life in the in the inner city. Um, I, I received the the Mark Twain Award uh, year, years ago. Uh, the first recipient was was Richard Pryor, uh, and in in a certain way, Richard was doing the same thing that Mark Twain was doing in 1900. Uh, Mark Twain was describing life on the Mississippi, uh, you know, in the frontier. What was considered the the Mississippi was the frontier of the United States. <clears throat> And Richard was doing life in the inner city. So they were both kind of doing the same thing. Uh, I disagree with they use shock just for shock value. Um, but when it's essential to the material, I don't find it uh, vulgar or, or offsetting. Do you think certain, audience, certain audiences nowadays like seeing Vulgar younger audience. Well, younger audiences want they want the the uh, the comedy faster. Um, we used to take on, on the Bob Newhart show and on Newhart, um, we would take sometimes a minute to set up a joke. Uh, I I don't think you can do that today. I I think it, it's got to be bang bang bang, bang bang bang, bang bang bang. That, that's the audience. They've demanded that. Uh, that's what they want. Um, and they want it in their music, and they want it in, in their life. They, they, they want it faster. And uh, so it, it isn't wrong or right. It's just... It's what it is. It's, it's how comedy it is. is changing. Yeah. yeah. Who are you a fan of now? Who, which comedians do you watch today? Um, well, the young comedian, I don't know. You may not be familiar with some of them. Uh, as a, an act, act, a comedian named Wayne Fetterman. Um, I like uh, uh, Jim Gaffigan. Um, I like, um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. With his work. Um, that's all right. Uh, uh, there, there's a comedian I like very much uh, named Jake Johansson. There, there are a lot of young guys coming along. Do you? any of them call you, text you, email you for advice, or? Well, in Wayne's case, I, uh, uh, I, I, I saw him on a, on a, I think it was on Fallon, and uh, I wrote him a note and told him I saw him. I, I liked his uh, humor and good luck, and um, I hope things work out for you. And uh, he wrote back. And uh, I think it's important to to encourage people. You know, you need that kind of every everybody in whatever walk of life need you need the encouragement that you're good at something and stay with it. And it may not be working now, but it will because you're good at it. Uh, not just comedy, but in 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 life. What piece of recommendation would you give to? Up and coming, or people who are pursuing careers in comedy. Well, I would encourage anyone to do it. It's uh, even if it doesn't work out, it, it's incredible training uh, to get up in front of a an, a live audience. Which I, I've read that, uh, when when people would list the 
it's the scariest things they could imagine. One, one of them is getting up in front of a live audience. Uh, so if you can get up in front of a live audience, especially as a comedian, um, th that's going to help you the rest of your life, whether you become a professional comedian or, or not. I'm curious, Mr. Newhart, yep. I know you've been on a couple seasons of The Big Bang Theory, you were an elf, but what do you do now on your spare time? I still do stay. Um, um, I'm cutting back, I'm doing, well, I'm 87, so um, at some point you've got to say enough's enough. Um, it's more the travel and the, the inconvenience of travel and um, but once you get there, and once you're on the stage, and it's working, uh, it's worth all the all the all the aggravation. I'll do this year probably maybe ten stand-up dates, mm. uh, and uh, I I can't ever imagine as long as I'm physically able, uh, I can't ever imagine not doing stand-up. I mean, I can't. Is that feeling when you get on stage the same feeling you had the first time you got on stage? When I when I go to a, a, a date today, and this is 1960, so this is 57, 57 years ago. 1960, yeah, 57 years ago. Um, January of 1960, 57 years ago. Um, at about six o'clock, I'll start pacing, and I'll pace, and I'll pace, and I'll pace until showtime, and then, and then the band will play my play on music, and ladies and gentlemen, Bob Newhart, and I'll walk out and do your I, stuff. Yeah, I don't, I don't accept anything as as a given. Um, it's it it gives it it's that adrenaline rush that you need to get out <coughs> to get out there on stage, mm -hmm. and uh, and as I say, it's worth all the aggravation in the world just to be there to be having a good time for the audience to be having a good time. It's a it's a narcotic of some kind. Yeah, I'd like to take a quick sidetrack here. To <laughs> is there anything you have to say about the late Mary Tyler Moore? Well, Mary, uh, she and, and Grant Tinker and Arthur Price uh, formed a company called MTM. Uh, and, uh, and I was lucky enough to, to have been part of that. It was, it was an incredible, wonderful place. I don't think it exists anymore. Um, creativity was, was highly praised and highly sought after. Um, the writer was king. Um, the creative person was king, um, and I was lucky enough to be part of that world. And and it that came from Mary and Grant and Arthur that uh, they created that atmosphere for for actors and writers and directors, and uh, it was a wonderful place. When, when I told some people that I was going to interview you, they wanted to know what your relationship was, uh, your friendship with Jonathan Winters was. Can you tell Johnny? Oh, Johnny. Uh, <laughs> see, it's hard to say Jonathan Winters and not to start to laugh. 
it's, it's hard to say Tim Conway and not mm-hmm. <laughs> start to laugh. Um, Johnny was the best. No question about it. Johnny was was at his his time in the field of comedy. He was the best. Um, and I thought to myself because I, I was starting out shortly after Johnny, and uh, I thought to myself, well, no one's funnier than Johnny Winters. And I said, well, but number four isn't bad, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, without doing Johnny, you you learned a lot from from Johnny. Just his uh, stream of consciousness uh, that uh, they they'd give him something, and they just he'd make a whole story, uh, a whole half hour story out of a an orange ball, a tennis ball, something. Like, like what, how about Robin Williams who just died? They were buddies. They're kind of like the same wow. kindred spirit. They did, yeah. They did. Uh, I don't want to get into it because Robin's dead, but he was doing. He was doing Johnny. <coughs> That's what he's doing, right? Yeah. Yeah, much faster. Again, we're back to the speed aspect of it, but uh, much faster. Than he was channeling Jonathan Winters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I never put that together. It makes perfect sense. Oh yeah, no question about. It. He admitted he was a huge. He was a huge fan of uh, of Johnny's. Right there, you go. Tom Poston told me, because uh, he was on Mork and Mindy, uh, and he said uh, when they had Johnny Winters on, uh, which was fairly often, uh, he said sometimes it'd be it'd be two three o'clock in the afternoon before they ever got their first shot, because the two of them were just playing off each other, yeah, just feeding each other. Sure. What is the most important thing you've learned in your life? Whoa. Um, well, I, actually, it's very simple, I guess. It's uh, family and friends. Um, and the rest of it doesn't matter a hell of a lot. <laughs> we just lost a, a good friend of ours, uh, Mike Connors, who was, uh, he was Maddox on television. And uh, you, you begin to realize how important friends are and, and how important family is. And all the awards and everything else. Don't mean to kill the beans to, to borrow a line from uh, Casablanca. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you.